Hi everyone, Adam here. Apologies up front. At the start of the podcast, the introduction I gave, which was obviously hilarious, uh, cuts out a little bit short, so you're missing about five seconds of just pure, pure comedy gold from me at the beginning. Um, otherwise, though, the podcast is perfectly fine and all up to scratch. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to warn you that you'll be missing out on some hilarity. And uh, and yeah. Um, well, I hope you enjoy the rest of the show regardless. The second episode of the Q-Tip podcast, uh, the podcast by the regulatory consulting firm Corsus. Um, it's me again, Adam. Sorry, uh, I'm back for a second week. Uh, I'm also delighted to be joined by Carolyn once again. Carolyn, how are you? Hi, everyone. I'm well, thank you. And we are both very excited to be joined by two new voices. Uh, we've got Liam and Andrew Pinnington. Uh, from, well, Liam Gallagher and Andrew Pinnington. They both they don't have the same surname. That'd be a bit weird. Um, so yeah. So Liam, how are you? And can you tell us a little bit about yourself first? I'm good, thank you, Adam. Um, yes. Yeah, so I joined courses just over three months ago, and. Yeah, my main background was law, studied law at university, uh, graduated in 2017, took a year out, but been road consulting ever since, pretty much. Yeah, very good. And Andrew, Andrew Pennington, the uh, the man of the hour. How are you today? Man of the half hour, hopefully. No one should have to listen to me for an hour. Very well, thank you. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. Bit bit daunted, don't really want to listen to myself, but hopefully at least two or three other people will want to. I, I can confirm after looking at the stats for the first episode, if you take out everybody who I forced to download it, we have literally tens of listeners. So, uh, Hey, it's going up. I thought. Yeah, certainly getting bigger. So yeah, so we kind of thought this would be a bit of a, a bit of a Q&A type um, a type of podcast with Andrew um, obviously joining us recently which we're very very happy about so Andrew starting off um, could you just give me a little bit um, of a background about yourself uh, yeah a bit of an introduction and background about yourself and your work experience yeah of course um, so I'm Andrew Pennington joined Corsus around a month ago um, as a director to help lead our, our reg reporting practice. And prior to that, I ran the European derivatives reporting team at, at Goldman Sachs. Um, so I was at Goldman Sachs for about six and a half years, um, working on kind of business as usual reporting, um, change management, delegated reporting. So really kind of front to back reg reporting. Um, prior to that, I was a consultant. So this isn't my first rodeo, so to speak. Um, and when I came out of uni, I, I was in a sales role for kind of a year, 18 months. That was my first job. Um, but then quite quickly moved into consulting, then to Goldman and, and now back to consulting. So gone full circle. Oh, it sounds, uh, sounds like you had a much more exciting job than my first, uh, my first job coaching under 13s to swim, which, uh, not not quite as interesting or as important um so would you sort of want to talk a little bit about your your experience at goldman uh your time at uh, goldman sachs because obviously 
uh, as we'll come on to it in a bit, they have they've been in the news a little bit uh, recently. So how did you, how did you find it working at such a such a well renowned and important in uh, the ecosystem kind of company? Yeah, I mean it was surprising they employed me for sure. Um, it, it was interesting. I think that there's there's a perception that Goldman is a very kind of cutthroat, competitive environment um, where where people kind of throw their weight around and almost like that fictional kind of Gordon Gecko character walking the floor, making all all, all of these decisions. And the the reality is is actually very different. Uh, unsurprisingly, it's a very consensus-driven organisation. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that to get any decisions made, that involves a lot of people agreeing that something should be done. Um, so yeah, ultimately it's 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 a high performance culture. It's uh it's you know an interesting place to work. There's good people, but yeah, the portrayal externally is definitely quite different to the internal reality for sure. So uh, sort of it's it's like you wrote that segue for me um touching on that whole external portrayal and the internal dynamics um there's there's obviously they've been in the news recently uh with some things have come out about their graduate scheme do you want to um what's what's your perspective what's what's your take on on the story first of all and well, this, yeah i mean it's an interesting one this is where i'd probably have to ask carolyn as a lawyer what i can and can't say well i was um, just going to add that everything andrew says on this podcast is andrew's opinion not necessarily the opinion of courses even <laughs> though we value his opinion and my follow-on question to that is is the grad scheme there similar to the very infamous show industry on bbc but again that's just me and my tv addiction yeah, no, both both very good questions. So um, it's an interesting one. I think the the media stories are justified. Um, the acts that are being quoted are obviously excessive, but there's probably a, a few bits of context that get missed in in those those portrayals. I guess firstly, these are IBD. Um, to explain the jargon, sorry, investment banking analysts. And if you think about the number of people that work in investment banking at Goldman, it's actually a relatively small proportion of the the total people that, that work at Goldman. Um, so it's, you know, probably three or 4% of the entire firm. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's not great. And I think as much as anything, it was a bit of a, a communications problem that the firm wasn't seen to react to it um, in in the way that perhaps they should have done. But in my experience, the the analysts and, and junior folk that that were on my old team or, or that I used to work with um, were always very clear on on what their expectations were um, and and how they should be um, how they should be able to kind of have flexible working, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I mean it's nothing like industry, unsurprisingly um in industry is yeah i mean it'd be a bit like saying you know is ted lasso like managing a football club or something like that but yeah i mean it's um it, you've it's, gone down the football route you've now lost me but i will take your word for it no oh no i'm sorry i had to get it in there somewhere it's just yeah 
exactly yeah it's a, it's a difficult one i saw ted lasso being filmed in richmond actually last week which was like my highlight of lockdown probably <laughs> well it's better than my highlight of lockdown is getting a new mug um so. i thought you were going to say it was making this podcast adam well that's my second <laughs> highlight this is a very cool mug i've got carolyn um, <laughs> apparently sort of uh downplay the importance of that um so sort of you talk about how perhaps the media portrayal isn't exactly fair so are you in your opinion do you think this is likely to be something that happens industry-wide is this if these uh sort of complaints are are to be believed is your opinion that it's probably just happening everywhere or yeah it is um and and you'll see it's it's quite interesting how a lot of firms have essentially you know in the past few weeks sent cash to this population the junior population so there, there's a couple of banks that have offered like cash bonuses to keep um keep people there keep them happy which doesn't deal with the problem right it, it doesn't deal with the issue that people feel like they have no flexibility um they they feel like ultimately they're they're not being valued for what they do it's definitely an industry-wide issue um but but equally there's also the realization and this is probably an unpopular statement but this has always really been the case in investment banking and in m a uh, there's always been a, a very kind of work hard play hard culture um that that attracts a certain type of person um and that's not me saying well they knew what they were getting into they should be quiet because I, I absolutely don't believe that but equally everyone should go into an investment banking position with their eyes wide open i i couldn't have hacked that i couldn't work 90 hours a week um i need my sleep i need you know a certain out number of hours eating per day which my lockdown wardrobe reflects um so it's it's a tricky one like clearly there needs to be change but but equally um investment banking m a has always had that that kind of culture of you work every hour in in the day to, to get stuff done for clients so it, it's a really tricky one i think people's expectations of what they get out of the workplace has changed for the better uh, and that's something that the banks and lots of other institutions are having to, to kind of wrap with as well So it's not quite the social reckoning we were expecting then. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's it's a, a tricky one, but yeah, I mean, banks are definitely trying to address it, and I think they realise that it's, you know, if they don't address it, it's going to be difficult for them to attract people in the future, let alone retain people that they have now. Just uh, just maybe make a note there of that, Carolyn. Um cash incentives for junior employees i'll just uh, i'll <laughs> remind you about that later we can talk about yeah that. mental note mental my birthday at the end of the month actually yeah okay well my again, birthday's already one. been so that present i assume was just stuck in the post will again not important but. We'll does that, that mean us. you're available 90 hours a month now liam i'll bear that in mind <laughs> 90 hours a week sorry not month <laughs> 90, 90 hours a month like a we can negotiate yeah <laughs> um so so obviously you you left goldman sachs what was it about courses other than sort of the three people you're talking to now um that attracted you to uh, to join the company 
was going to say, yeah, the podcast, ability to make a podcast. Um, a few reasons, actually. So the ability to join something that's quite small and growing so rapidly is is hugely attractive, right? When you're coming from a big structured firm where there's a huge amount of bureaucracy, um, being able to join something that is really exciting, very vibrant, empowering, like, you know, I can come up with an idea, take it to Carolyn, take it to to Ryan, the other partners, and, you know, it's very much, well, if you think it's going to work, go and do it. And that's just something you don't get in a bigger firm. Um, and ultimately, that that was a, a key factor. I think Corsus is really different to other consulting firms in the sense that it's very expertise-led. If you look at the, the people that, that we have, um, that is fairly unique in the consulting space. And it it means there's a bit of a kind of home for everyone. There's people with really good project management skills. There's people with a lot of SME knowledge. There's people that kind of blend the two. Um, and having that kind of diversity of experience and thought is very attractive as well, coming from an environment where people have got fairly similar skill sets and, and fairly similar experiences. Um, uh, and finally, you know, I know that the the kind of founders have have done this before and have set up kind of businesses. They've learned from that kind of how to to create a good culture. Um, and it was pretty clear from my interviews that that is a, a positive culture, one where people are supported, um, where you know people are recognised and valued for their contribution as well. So, I mean, you know. I think Miriam will be happy with that answer, right? Like, I think I've covered all of the pieces. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't want Andrew's head to get too big after this podcast, but what I will say is that's part of the reason why we brought on Andrew, is he mentioned before um, having SME knowledge and, and, and people working at this consulting firm that really have been in the trenches before that can really relate to our customers. And Andrew's an example of that. You know, he was the head of this EMEA reg reporting operations team at Goldman's. And so he brings a really unique perspective that he can just pass on to, to the benefit of our customers. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the type of advice we want to provide is people who've actually been there before because we want it to be of value to them. We don't want to just be sitting on high. So, yes, we're very glad that that Andrew has joined to give that perspective. Yeah, and it's pretty nice not to come into the office and have to deal with thousands of exceptions every day and just like look at other people's problems that's probably the less politically correct answer adam but there we go <laughs> no i understand that i said the same thing when i joined courses and it was like it's really nice to not be yelled at regulators all day which i'm yeah. sure you can appreciate as well Andrew. absolutely yeah it's good to know that we don't get yelled at yet either adam so that's watch, it watch it now <laughs> speak for yourself <laughs> um Andrew, you kind of mentioned there the shift in the kind of working environment and how that change in dynamic, but I thought it'd be also interesting to explore the change in dynamic on the kind of broader regulatory landscape. Obviously, we've got Brexit at the minute, and as someone who has, as you said, jumped from consultancy into industry and is now jumping back into consultancy, um, it'd just be interesting to get your sort of industry perspective on that changing dynamic with Brexit. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because rightly or wrongly, it comes up in every kind of panel discussion that 
ever happens in every industry meeting and it's always oh well is the fca going to get rid of all their regulation and or is esma going to get rid of all their regulation and, and the answer is obviously no um there's an, an interesting dynamic at play in the sense that a lot of european regulation especially financial regulation was very much driven by the fca and the uk authorities so bank of england um so you know the uk is not just going to reject stuff that it wrote previously i think what will be interesting is to see when new regs come out so mifid 3 i guess it'll be um the extent to which the uk and, and europe starts to diverge in some of those rules because there, there definitely is a bit of a competitive aspect at play around um not a race to the bottom but how do we define regulation in, in a better way um and if you ask the europeans they would say mifid 2 was written for the city of london right so without that kind of influence over the european legislative process it will be really interesting to see what europe does and how they potentially look at areas of of, of strength for the city um like clearing and, and things like that so yeah it, it's interesting i don't think it's as kind of drastic as people make out in the short term but i think when it comes to the new the new regulations that that come down the pipe eventually we'll see we'll see a bit of divergence and that's probably kind of two, three years time. And obviously for firms in industry, it, the media can often sort of conflate the increased challenges that they might have, but they will now be having to deal with two different regulators if they have a European base, particularly a bank like Goldman who um, based in America. Um, how do you see that developing or evolving? Do you think that one might take preference to the other? yeah it's it's interesting i think i always had pretty good relationships with the fca and, and found them quite easy to interact and communicate with um on the european side you obviously depending on on what bank you are have multiple touch points as well because you've got all of the individual european regulators so like barfin in germany amf in france and then you have those bodies that sit above them like esma and, and the the, what they call supranational regulators um so yeah it's 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 interesting in a sense that you know firms are going to have to maintain those contacts and potentially what they might negotiate or agree with one regulator might be different to what they'd agree with a a different um competent authority so something they might agree to do to satisfy the fca might be different to what you know, BaFin or, or the AMF might like. So that's that's going to be interesting over the next few years for sure. In terms of preference, uh, I don't know. Like, as I said, the FCA are fairly mature in terms of regulatory oversight and and how they respond to firms approaching them with questions and things. That they've got a bit of a head start. Um, it will be interesting to see if the European ncas respond and kind of step up some of their capability to be honest yeah um yeah i definitely think that would be an interesting dynamic and i think equally there's like a competitive edge there that's coming out and i suppose my last question for you would be how do you think or where do you think the fca could perhaps diverge from the esmo or the eu in general to kind of provide that competitive edge yeah i think 
um, the FCA and, and Bank of England are, are quite heavily involved in some of the digital reg reporting um, initiatives that are being set up by the industry. Um, so they've been quite involved in, in the process of creating that framework. I think the ideal state is that we, we kind of, um, as an industry, get them round the table and help um, define those standards moving forward as well. Not necessarily, you know, show them the models and say, dear FCA, please, you know, tick every single line of this is correct, but more have an adult conversation around the fact that, you know, if we're if we're wildly going off off piste or if we're going in the wrong direction, that regulators can kind of let us know that they were expecting something different. Um, so the FCA and Bank of England are quite involved in that process and very few other regulators are, um, which I think reflects probably a, a slight difference in capability. So if you're talking about kind of competitive edge, I think, uh, yeah, the FCA and Bank of England and UK authorities have got a bit more of that data um, data mindset, um, you know, FinReg mindset to to the European regulators, if I'm honest. But I know the European regulators are trying to build that out as well. So it'd be interesting to see if they if they kind of catch up. And Andrew, just taking a step back, you know, you hear this term digital reg reporting a lot right now. It's kind of a hot topic. And um, for the benefit of all of our 10 listeners, what do you really mean by digital reg reporting? And what are you hearing coming out of these industry groups about the progress that's been made around this topic? Yeah, no, you're spot on. Sorry, I just assume I just assume I bore everyone with this so they know about it. And anyway, um, you're, you're right. So the, the basic premise behind digital reg reporting is that instead of having these massive 200 page documents that define what you should and shouldn't be reporting written by lawyers. Sorry, no offense, Carolyn. Um, None taken. You have these these machine executable models um, that essentially allow you to put a trade in one side um, and spit out a fully formed reg report on the other side. And that obviously is the utopia. Um, the the reality is obviously a fair way off that at the moment. So the digital reg reporting is, is very much focused at the moment on mutualizing interpretation um, and interpretation logic models and, and things like that, rather than that full kind of end to end insert trade. It goes through the machine executable rules. Here's the output that that's still quite a long way off. Um, but that is basically the aim of the the, uh, the the scope at the moment. That's interesting. And do you think, based on the question that Liam asked you previously, do you think the FCA could be a major innovator in this sense? Or are there other global regulators, whether that's in North America or Asia, that will be helpful in pushing along the progress on digital reg reporting? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think all the regulators seem interested in it, but not all the regulators seem to want to be involved in it, which is, is the tricky bit because the industry can only push it so far, right? Like we can have the smartest people from all the banks. Um, you know, I, I'm part of some of the groups still. Um, I'm not defining myself as one of the smarter people around the table just before you jump in. Um, but unless the regulators are willing to come and give that steer, uh, it, it does become a little bit difficult. Um, 
I think the the UK regulators have had a seat at the table already. I think it absolutely needs the SEC, the CFTC, um, you know, the MAS, HKMA and things like that to be involved for it to be a success. It definitely shouldn't be a, a kind of Europe or, or UK driven initiative. Um, there's just, I think there's a bit of reluctance. Actually, Carolyn, you probably know about this better than me. There just, there seems a bit of reluctance from some of the, the US regulators to get involved in these machine executable rules because I think they feel that it has a bit of a, a kind of odd interaction with the legal text. They're a bit like if we sign off on this machine model or like this machine executable rule, does it impact our ability to enforce the existing legal text? And that's a really interesting like philosophical debate. Yeah, I think there will be some reluctance from that side. I think historically that's just kind of the personality of those North American regulators. As you said, I think for them, they might see it as almost a lack of control. Um, however, I think if other global financial regulators start picking up digital reg reporting, supporting and advancing it, I could see the North American regulators following on after the fact because they might trust it more. Um, but nevertheless, I think the advocacy around this point could be extremely beneficial for those regulators. And I think they will always be open to listening to that. They may not just be the, the front runners in that. Um, and again, we've seen that in rules rewrites. We've seen that in other areas of the industry. Um, and from your perspective, Andrew, on a scale of one to 10, one being the very early stages of digital reg reporting and 10 being completely advanced, done, no more work is required, where would you say we are in that spectrum? And what are the immediate next steps in terms of progress of digital reg reporting? Um, probably about 0.9. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one. We're, yeah, we're right at the start. Um, ultimately, the, the next steps or the immediate next steps are trying to map the what are called critical data elements. So those are fields that are in common between CFTC and EMEA. I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head. I think it's about 70 or 80. Um, and the idea is that if you model those correctly, um, that you, you get an obvious benefit because they're applicable across more than one regulation. Um, so I think that's the immediate next step. And there's been there's been good progress in that. Um, and, you know, the mutualization of best practice and, and interpretation and things. Um, in addition, there's going to be some kind of test packs and, and things created, which I think is a, a massive benefit to the industry. The question that I used to get asked at GS more often than any other was, well, what's everyone else doing? Like, what what is every other other, other firm doing? And having a test pack where you can say, well, actually, like we're testing the same scenarios as X, Y, Z adds a massive amount of value. Um, so we are right at the start. But there's there's been good progress. Um, it will be interesting to see as well as those critical data elements get done, the extent to which those um, CDE definitions are adopted by other regulators, like the the Asian regulators, Australian regulators, things like that. So, yeah, it's it's right at the start. It's an exciting initiative, but um, there's still a, a massive amount. You know, 99% of the work still needs to be done. It, it's unbelievable to hear that. FOMO or fear of missing out, 
affects not only people going to the pub or out with their friends, but also the derivatives industry when it comes to onward compliance with digital reg reporting requirements. I mean, it sounds like people just don't want to be the first. They don't want to be the last. They want to be right in the middle, but they don't want to be left out. Yeah, 100 um, percent. Very few people tend to want to go to the pub with people that work in reg reporting. So Fair. That's, that's part Fair. of the that's part of the problem we face. Um, but yeah, I was actually going to ask you a question, Liam. I know yeah. you're you're kind of reasonably new to reg and, and reg reporting. I'm almost kind of so much used to it now um, that it, I don't really come to it with a fresh perspective anymore. Like what what do you think of, you know, the way the rules are explained and the way the processes are, are kind of set up at the moment? Is, do you think it's quite low tech based on other things that you've seen in the past like is it is it an area that seems ripe for digitization and, and improvement in the way that we kind of think it is coming to it reasonably fresh in short i'd say no um a lot of the text and you know general sort of almost some of the thought leadership as well that you read around it is often quite cumbersome um and when doing sort of reg change projects at my previous place Going through the um, discussion papers and the different sort of consultation papers that get circulated, there's often hard to find consensus. And I think for something like this, there really does need to be quite a widespread consensus to really get the ball rolling. Um, and I think because sadly, a lot of political factors can map onto the dynamic, um, coming to consensus is probably often quite difficult for, particularly, I guess, with the Brexit landscape as well. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Well, um, I think uh, I think we somehow managed to cover off everything there. I think the fact that there was less of me speaking meant there was less rambling. So we actually managed to cover off all the topics in uh, in good time for everyone's trip down to the pub, which which as of recording, everyone uh, everyone can now do. Uh, just a quick. Uh, lay of the land. How many of us on the call have been been out uh, been out to a pub? I can say I haven't as of yet. I went out last night. Yeah, I went tonight. out on Monday. Tonight's the night for me. Champions League football. FOMO, Adam. Come on, you got to get there. <laughs> it's it's booked in for Sunday, and uh, I'm planning on eating there as well. And I've been pestering the place on Facebook and Instagram because they haven't got a menu up online. <laughs> uh, but that's that says more about me than it does about the realities of that pub or in fact uh anything related to the financial industry that we've been talking about today it was um, nice to see people out actually though it was it was it was weird but it was good to see people out and and liam champions league football i'm i'm not familiar with that what's that <laughs> <laughs> it's just this thing they play on tuesdays and wednesday nights what a great theme tune check no, it out no, I, i'm more of a thursday night football man okay fair enough Adam, you obviously mentioned the um, return to the pub. Do you see this podcast evolving into taking place in the pub? I know quite a few other podcasts do that. Uh, Carolyn's nodding her head furiously. <laughs> um, I mean, if if we can expense several pints um, each, obviously, um, then sure, I, it might make it more entertaining. A little bit harder to edit, I'd imagine, with all the slurred words, but um, but we'll see what we can do. I think it's got... imminently doable love to see it um well yeah i think uh, i think that probably wraps us up for today um 
just wanted to say thank you obviously everyone for listening if you could download uh subscribe share give the podcast five stars on all the platforms uh in which it's available that would be greatly appreciated um and thank you to everyone for joining me today thank you to andrew and liam for your first time your debuts on on the podcast thank you for having me um enjoyed it we'll have to see if anyone else actually enjoys it or enjoys listening to me but yeah really good thank you very much yeah it's been a pleasure we'll definitely return and uh thank you once more to carolyn for uh for joining me thanks looking forward to the next one and uh and yeah i i would suppose i would say goodbye now thanks cheers, cheers.